0: You're listening to Voices of Your Village. I got to hang out with Lori Goodrich. She's an occupational therapist that I love and have leaned on over the years for so many things. I learn from her every time I get to speak with her. And we got to chat about restraint collapse. You know, when your kid comes home from school or childcare and they just melt for you, or maybe they've been with a grandparent and all of a sudden they break down for you, that is restraint collapse, where they've held it together all day long, and then they collapse for you. We're going to chat about what this is, what's happening for them, and then ways that you can support your unique child. I dive in depth into the nervous system and what's happening for them and how to figure out what is draining for your kid and what is regulating for your child and how to respond to your unique child in the moment outside of these after-school times and really just across the board with emotions and regulation, I dive deep into that in our book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions. Lauren and I co-created the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method, the SEP method. We researched it across the U.S., and we spent five years putting the data together and bringing this book to life to really serve you with something I didn't find anywhere else on the market. It's really what I needed as a teacher and as a parent. It's your guide to raising emotionally intelligent humans. And it's available for order right now. It publishes on October 10th. And if you order right now at slash book, we will send you some free goodies. You get access to our back to school workshop to reference and come back to and so much more as a little, hey, thanks for ordering ahead of time. You're the bomb. Head on over to slash book to snag tiny humans, big emotions. All right, folks, let's dive in. Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans, raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Let's dive in together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I get to hang out with one of my favorite people, Lori Goodrich. Lori is an occupational therapist who, during her decades of practice, has developed expertise in sensory integration, neurodevelopmental techniques, and feeding-slash-mealtime therapy. Laura utilizes her knowledge in these core areas alongside an ever-evolving understanding of other factors that influence the human experience in order to provide a range of services for clients of all ages and abilities. She's passionate about providing accessible and meaningful education opportunities for parents and professionals in order to support the needs of the community and those in it. She feels fortunate to be able to share information in a wide variety of platforms, including workshops, consultations, courses, podcasts. I had the privilege of getting to know Lori as a teacher. Lori was an occupational therapist who was contracted into my school and would come in and really work with us as teachers, not with individual kids, which is really rare in early childhood, at least. Usually our only access to OTs is if we have a child who's receiving services in our program and the OT is working directly with the kid. Uh, And my exposure to Lori was such a gift in that it really, I was like, oh, this feels so in alignment with the Set method and the work that Lauren and I were doing at the time. And I've just had the ability to learn so stinking much from you, Lori. And I'm so grateful to get to get nerdy with you today and forever get to learn with you. How are you?
1: I'm pretty good. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing pretty well, pregnant, just feeling really pregnant, Uh, (laughs) but pretty good. We are, you know, as we're preparing for like back to school, Sage is starting a new school in September and um, yeah, just like kind of gearing up for prepping him for that and all that jazz, which is what brought us to today's topic of restraint collapse. And I think so many of us as parents feel this, like, who is my child and why are they a total disaster after school? And I want to dive into the why and also how we can support kids. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So what is restraint collapse? Why is it happening?
1: It's so interesting. I, I was confessing to um, to you before we got on that I was like, Oh, I've never heard that term before. I have heard, I know what it is, uh, but I was not familiar with the term and looked it up and was like, oh, they've actually named it, which I think speaks to when it, you're a family, a parent, or a caregiver, and you think it's just my child. It's not. There's a name for it. You know, it identifies that it, you're not the only person going through it, which I know a lot of families that I work with like that sense of, you know, even when it's a hard thing, it's a community around something. And what <laughs> restraint collapse is, is, you know, Uh, it's often identified with children but it certainly happens with adults so adults that are listening might also um, relate to this it's sort of I'm holding it together through the day and doing my best to have a good day and externally might look regulated um, but are overwhelmed by components of the day task demand it could be sensory input it could be I'm working, you know, I don't have my nutritional sleep needs met, you know, I'm just working hard at this very high level, in a lot of areas, and I'm holding it together and I'm holding it together. And I come home and, you know, that's my safe place. And that's where I'm going to show how hard I've been working, no matter what the sort of causes. Um, so parents will say, you know, the teachers never see anything in school, they come home, and they are it's like a switch and they're inconsolable for extended periods of time. It looks like it came out of nowhere. It's something that I hear a lot of parents talk about mm-hmm. um, when their kids come home. And this is sort of a, it could be every day. It could be uncertain days. And some of the kids that I work with have coordination differences. So like days with PE for them actually aren't a recharge. They're, you know, much harder than other days for them. Sure. So um, that's what restraint collapse is.
0: Um, it's almost like a powering through.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And some kids do that. Some kids have, they do that. You know, I think I've worked with lots of children that that's their sort of profile is they're, you know, they're functioning. I always put it in air quotes, they're functioning fine in school. What they're telling us afterwards is that at a tremendous cost. Totally. And other, that's not the, that's not the situation. I have plenty of kids that I work with that they're, you know, they're having regulation needs when they come home, but they're all, they also exist in school. So I think it's good to know that it's not the same for everybody and I think it speaks to um I have but it's you know at working on teams where they're like they look fine in school I'm like but they're telling us from what's happening afterwards that they're, they're not fine. yeah they're not, right and that can be you know you know personality traits or I think sometimes gender differences can play into that oh, interesting uh, So there's a lot of things that sort of influence it. But when I have a family that comes to me that says we're experiencing this, we would like, you know, what do we do? Is it behavior strategies? Is it this, you know? And um, Alyssa's heard me say this millions of times. It's like, why? What what is happening during the day that's creating that? Um, Whether it is often with an OT, it can be that sensory overload piece, but there can be other pieces that are going on. I have some clients that just don't eat enough during the day. So they're like, Oh, my gosh. I yes. Exist. I think anyone that's that <laughs> understands are like, "Oh, right. I know what I feel like when I haven't eaten. even if I don't understand mm. the sensory differences piece, I understand what it's like to not be fed or not well slept
0: totally. And, then- and to feel that dysregulation, literally, ok, we were on our way home from vacation, and we had stopped in Montpelier, which is like forty minutes from my house. And I was like, Sage, this is the last time we're stopping. He had to go pee. And i was like, we're going to get home from here. He had at the stop before that stopped and pooped at a rest stop. And when he has to go poop, he like won't eat. He can't like eat. He usually has a hard time sitting and he'll say, I'm having a hard time sitting. Um, And so we'd like just, he pooped and we're like, cool, cruising. And didn't put together for myself like, oh, he hasn't really eaten much today because he had to poop and we've been in the car, and so like access to doing that's been limited. Whatever, he pees him on Pillar. He has this like full meltdown, like the biggest meltdown he has had since he was maybe a newborn in the car. And I ended up pulling over and like stopping, and he just kept saying, "I need my mommy." And I was driving, and I pulled over, and I just went up and I put my face on his. (laughs) I was like, buddy, I'm right here. And he goes, I need rice and beans. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my God, I relate. Like, I, I know that feeling of like, I've gotten to this point of I'm so hangry, I cannot function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yes, yeah. And and I think for some kids, they like almost eat better at school with consistent meal times or like here's what's there to offer. And some kids don't. Uh and I think that's a really key thing to note of like, if your kid is a kid who doesn't, what does it look like on the way home or at pickup to like have a snack kind of ready to go?
1: Right. Right. Like those things. So this is where that like why factor comes in, right? So if you have a child that, you know, eating, drinking and all those things in school are part of their profile of what's tricky at school, you know, signs of the lunchbox comes home and there's like, you know. 25% twenty five percent of the food eat. And imagine if you ate twenty five percent of the food for your day between whatever time I get to school, eight to two or sure. 8 to three for a school school-age child, I would be like the crabbiest person on the planet. yeah every day. right. So if you know that's part of your child's profile, it might be that like you know that part of the routine is a preferred snack when the students mm-hmm. get or get off the bus or wherever they're coming from. So that they're not continuing to kind of dysregulate from that sort of like depletion of energy. You yeah. Know, and they feel seen. I always feel like, you know, us, I mean, sometimes you guess wrong, I guess wrong that you're like, Ooh, that's not what it was. But that idea of like, well, you, I know that it's tricky for you at school. It's really important for us to have a snack. Let's talk about what snacks I should have in the car.
0: Mm. So that you
1: refuel after a really busy day. Right.
0: Sure. Yeah. Bringing them into that. I love that. And it helps them build that body awareness for themselves of like, oh yeah, I am hungry. Right. And this is something that I might know about myself or learn about myself. Uh, yeah, I like that a lot. So just in a nutshell with restraint collapse, they've been kind of like holding it together for the day. Sometimes this will even happen where like I'll pick Sage up and he'll start to like melt from like my mother-in-laws and she's like, oh, he was fine the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, great. First of all, not helpful. Um, but <laughs> second of all, like, yep, this is part of it. He's been holding it together for you. Uh, and now I get the hard parts. And it does happen for us as adults. I found like if I'm kind of in go mode at work and maybe going beyond what I have the capacity or energy for that day that once the dust settles, I might have a migraine or I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm so depleted. All I want to do is lay, um, that like exhaustion piece. And so for some kids, I think when we pick them up from school or whatever, we might notice that some kids are melting, some kids disconnect and they just need like, they just want silence or they won't engage uh, and then there's some kids who are like let me tell you all about my day come on into my classroom
1: right it's different for everybody and I think in those situations I, I've seen it happen between caregivers sometimes from therapy to you know myself being you know aching at their caregiver but a caregiver for them or you know your teacher say well they're not like that at school like and they're um sometimes making the assumption about yes. about caregiver parenting styles I'll just put that as mm-hmm. a very general term and the fact of the matter is is like could that be a factor sure that could be a factor because we're all different humans right but that like for kids that are already working to hold it together another demand of the environment changing who that adult is with me with changing the relationship part all of those things are shifting I actually just had a really interesting it doesn't fall into the restraint collapse piece but I have a a young child that I see who we usually play in this one, I'm seeing him at his, um, it's like a a childcare center. So I usually see him in this one room where we're doing an activity he knows how to do and the school had to use the room for something else kind of unexpectedly. So we kind of knew what was happening, but not when. And it Mm -hmm. was like, it's math kids of kids coming in. So I was like, oh, we'll just, we'll bring the activity out in the hallway. And it was like, he had never done it before. It was so interesting. I'm like, we've done this game together, probably like at least 10 sessions over time. And was like, right? What a good a good reminder to me of you know. I I I I commu I was communicating with parents about like it is a good reminder of that shift from one space to another Mm -hmm. has a demand for him, and you know we had to kind of work on kind of re regulating before he could keep doing it. Versus me not me being like, well, you could do it in there, so yeah, do it here with the same expectation, even though it was a pretty substantial change. That we are, you know, now in a totally different space and knew we were going to have to go back to the other room. So it was a very like, an up, even as the adult, you're like, okay, this is like not right. pushing my, it's not pushing me into that overwhelmed state, but it is different, you know? Yeah, for sure. To set it up. What are we going to do?
0: It's one of the things that I learned from you early on. You taught me this idea of like, is it that this is something they don't know how to do or something they don't have access to right now? And that in that, like switching up the space for him, he knows how to do that game. He knows how to play that game, but now he might not be able to access it. And I think when we're looking at kind of expectations and task demands, when kids are coming home from school, maybe they do know how to take care of their lunchbox. They know how to take their shoes off by themselves. Maybe they know how to do certain things in the evening that in those moments, they might not have access to from a place of overwhelm Uh, and recognizing that we don't always have access to every tool that we have.
1: Right. And what an empower, I always think it's such an empowering thing for adults to say things like, wow, you know, you worked really hard at school today. I'm going to help you put your backpack away. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I have had parents say to me, well, if I help them with that, they're never going to want to do it their own. And that's not true. Right. Uh,
0: it's just not. Kids love to do things by themselves. Yeah.
1: Kids they want to do, kids intrinsically want to do what they can do, but it's just as important for them, for the adult to be like, I see you, I see who you are. I see how hard you're working and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to help you. It's different than, oh, I'm going to help you with the backpack or just like enabling to do everything, but like just verbally acknowledging, because can see you worked hard today or do you want help with your shoes? Yeah. You know, just giving a little bit of that you know, and when you think about restraint collapse, you can re, regroup in a lot of different ways and different, again, different for different people. Relationship is one of those ways to do it, right? It's yes. feeling like I'm with you, we're connected. Um, you know, it doesn't mean it's the only tool or that it's the same for everybody. But for a lot of kids that I work with, I do feel like that feels like them feeling seen and heard is I actually had a mom that just said to me. I feel like OT is about empowerment. Like her kid mm. made skill, skill changes with stuff, and I was like, I love that. Yeah, like, I love that because it's you know it is, we're you know we're working on different things, but when she really got her child got out of it, who was older? He was a third grader. Was you know he just felt like yeah, I can do stuff. Like check me out,
0: right. Well, I feel that way as an adult. Like the more I've learned about my own nervous system and my sensory systems, it does feel empowering. I'm like, cool, this isn't just like happening to me and I'm failing at life. Once I can like wrap my head around what is draining for me and what's restorative for me and what the why's behind it, like even though why can I access certain tools or language at sometimes and not at other times? Understanding that for myself was really empowering. I dig that perspective. Um, And I want to get into the like, how do we support them after school? And I think that a huge part of this comes back to like understanding who we are as individuals and doing that detective work. And I was just saying the other day, I think that OT's greatest superpower is that y'all are so curious. And I think curiosity is one of our greatest assets in life the ability to like pause and just ask questions and get curious about something uh to learn more and i think of that as like being a detective and i want to read an excerpt from the book that i think outlines this and then we can kind of dive into it yeah. lauren and i wrote we are detectives working to figure out how to best recharge our battery as well as our children's throughout the day And we all have a slightly different plug. One person can spin on a merry go round for 10 minutes and feel great, meanwhile, another person feels nauseous after one minute. One person can wear a baby all day and have their cup filled, while another person would feel touched out after 20 minutes. And likewise, one baby would feel good being worn all day and another would squirm to get down after a few minutes. The amount of food, rest in length of brain breaks that one body needs is different than that of another. And it takes trial and error to learn what works best. This is where we dove into like the triangle of growth and, and really learning about the sensory systems as our route for then being able to do higher level stuff. And really just pointing out that we are all different. And so I think that's the part that's really hard is that there isn't a one size fits all prescription that would be so convenient to be like, do this with your child and it will work. In fact, every time I see something on the internet, that's like, just do this. I'm like, oh, for some kids, sure. (laughs) What about this child or that child Um, or the parent that has a sensory mismatch there? And so I... Want to go into like what does it look like to be a sensory detective?
1: Well, curious is my favorite word, right? There's not a I see a I see young kids up through adults, and sometimes I think the adults, the kids, I don't think the kids think this, but like sometimes like teenagers, I think they think I have like a book of like, oh, when the person does this, you do this. I'm like, "Uh, that would be convenient, probably also make my job very boring (laughs) to be like, let me look up these exercises. Because everyone's different, right? So being a sensory detective is to me like keywords are being curious, observance. Um, mm-hmm. what happened in that moment that made that hard? What happened in that moment that helped? Mm-hmm. Um, and looking for sort of clusters of information um to see, you know, what actually what what are the what are they sensitive to, what's them help them function better? What things like task, task demand might be in the mix that are making things, you know, increased work for that person. Um, and I always like to remind people: so, occupational therapy is a is a is currently a graduate level program, and sensory integration is a specialized area of practice. And even if really experienced therapists that have high level training, you're still sometimes in that like, hmm. Because you're trying to make observation about what's going on in the nervous system from stuff you're seeing on the outside, right? I wonder Probably. why they're doing that, you know? And so I I often, even as a therapist, sometimes when I have a complicated kid, I'll have like a little data collection thing and try to put together clusters of information. So sometimes just observing and writing things down, right? To be like, when were they doing their best? What was making that hard? Um, those are things that I always think. I think terminology that's out there that I find... Sorry, whoever came up with this. I hope they're not listening. Things like sensory seeker, mm. I find to be, I mean, I, I, it, to me, it doesn't mean anything, right? Like, so. I think we all might, seek certain sensory right. experiences. Right. And for different reasons. Yeah. Right? So, some people that are sensory seekers, which are people that are like seeking out regular, maybe touch or movement, they could be seeking that out because they're overwhelmed with stimulation, that sensory modulation during the day. And they're trying to regulate themselves
0: or... Again, let's pause that real quick. So I'm when I hear that, what I hear is that like they have been kind of depleted all day long. Their body's working really hard. And they, if we think of it like a battery that they are in that kind of like red zone maybe. And now they're trying to do things to kind of recharge and and make up for that, charge up their battery. Um, But from a place of overwhelm.
1: Right, they're overwhelmed, so
0: mm-hmm.
1: they can hear the humming of the lights and the visual right. stimulation. And kids are bumping into them, and their clothing is, that doesn't feel just right. That's like that, like I'm overwhelmed by stimulation. That dial doesn't exist for them, so it's kind of constantly on. Mm-hmm. And then other people, you know, they don't quite understand their bodies, that body awareness of like, where are my arms and legs, but I'm getting dressed and I'm trying to figure out how to play on the playground and play with my friends. And maybe I'm too rough or I like to touch kids because I'm really not sure, you know, where my body and the rest of the world begins. Those people can also be sensory seekers. Mm-hmm. So this is where like clustering information. If you're like, wow, they're a sensory seeker, like, do they seem more sensitive? To input, Or do they seem like, wow, they don't understand their body as well as they need to, or could be both. This is where I think things like that, the sensory quiz that you generated is a great beginning tool for someone to have yeah. some questions to be thinking about, you know, what profile does somebody fall into? So you can start thinking about um, what those, what these clusters and patterns might actually be. But part of yeah. this, just being curious, I know the school that we consulted at doesn't work for every teacher but I used to say like if you have a moment like whatever moment is like a more relaxed moment sometimes you can't tell when it's going to be maybe it's on the playground and like oh there's less kids here today or we have all the TAs are here you know one Mm -hmm. of those days oh just sit back and watch the child for like just aim for five minutes I'm going to observe five minutes of what they're doing you know Mm -hmm. and just get get curious about like what 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 are they doing? Are they avoiding groups? You know, do you see them covering yeah. their ears? Do you see them bumping into kids? Do you see them? Um, a lot of kids that don't understand their body um, spend a lot of time walking around on the playground because they don't quite understand the coordination aspects of accessing playground equipment. Sure. So it's looking for those sort of clusters of information to be like, what do I think is going on?
0: Hormone Harmony is an all-in-one hormonal balancing solution for women of all ages. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier, and that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormone changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Hormone harmony is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put your life on hold, like hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas. Yeah, hormone harmony can help with all these things. And the biggest benefit, feeling like yourself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews, and there are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code VILLAGE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code VILLAGE for 15% off today.
2: Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life stucks.
0: I don't know about you, but when I scroll through Instagram or I'm tuning into podcasts and diving into parenting resources, resources for myself as a teacher... I can feel overwhelmed. Like, where do I start? I need a guide for what this looks like in practice. And I don't want something that's one size fits all because every child is different, right? And like, if you have multiple children, you're a teacher, you know that it's not one size fits all. Or if you have seen what works for your sister-in-law or your best friend or your neighbor and you're like, oh my gosh, my child does not respond to that. That is how I felt. And then we created the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. It is a guide for building emotional intelligence. And y'all, there are five components of the SET method. One is about how to respond to the kids and what it looks like to have adult-child interactions. The other four are about us. Because I don't know about you, but I did not grow up getting these tools. I did not grow up with them. I didn't grow up in this household where... I was taught tools for self-awareness and self-regulation and how to do emotion processing work. And now as a parent and as a teacher, I'm supposed to teach those skills to a tiny human, but we can't teach what we don't know. And so my first book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, is here to support you. You can head to www.seedandsew.org book and snag tiny humans' big emotions today. This is a game changer. It's going to build these skills with you, for you, so that you can do this work alongside building these skills for your tiny humans so that they can grow up with a skill set for self-awareness, for regulation, for empathy, for social skills, for intrinsic motivation. A skill set of emotional intelligence so that they can navigate all the things that come their way in life. Snag tiny humans, big emotions at seedandsew.org slash book. We were just on vacation with, there were four families all staying in a house, 7 billion kids between one and nine years old. And it's a handful of folks that work on the seed team. Uh, and, so this is like for us fun and it's nerdy. And we were just like sitting on the beach as adults, watching the kids and just talking about their sensory profiles, which is hilarious now that I say it out loud, <laughs> but we were like, oh my gosh, so interesting. Like he is sensory sensitive and will just take space. And when he's starting to feel overwhelmed, we'll just take space and go away from people or we'll ask to play with certain toys or go into certain spaces that he already feels really comfortable and trust that environment etc um like where he sleeps or whatever just like this is a space i know um and then this other tiny human who has a low perceptive awareness and is like on people's bodies and they are feeling touched out but this kiddo is like just trying to engage and we're just like observing all of this and we're like okay how do we support this human versus this human and that it's different and what does it look like when you have a group when we have seven billion kids in one household between one and nine and we are outnumbered as adults. (laughs) You are not, (laughs) we can't provide one-to-one here. So like, what does it look like to really support their needs? And we were talking about this knowing I was coming back and recording this episode. And I was like, yeah, when you come home from school and you're a parent of three kids and they have different sensory needs, right? Like you've done the observation part and you're like, okay, yeah, she needs- movement in certain ways like she needs heavy work or she needs vestibular input and he really thrives on connection and she needs downtime and to decrease stimuli and whatever like looking at these three kids with really different sensory needs after school and how do we accommodate that
1: Right. I feel like that is, that's a, I've had some parenting consulting that I've done. and it's a real, I'm just going to acknowledge it's a very hard thing. And then yeah. you have a sense of the parent's nervous system in the middle of that too. right? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I think sometimes you have kids that are more independent. So if you, let's say you had an, an eight-year-old, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, you know, yeah, the eight-year-old, you know, if they have, if, if you know, depending on what everybody needs, who can do something independent? All right, I'll lay out three
0: kids for you. Ready? Okay. we so have a nine year old who okay. thrives on the connection. um, And a seven year old who can get overstimulated and feel overwhelmed coming home from school, sensory sensitive. And then a four year old uh, who seeks both connection and largely proprioceptive input that like big body play or heavy work.
1: Right. Okay. Um, I talk to kids about their bodies. So I love that. I would have conversations with all these kids and whatever capacity they're interested in, you know, in their, you know, their cognitive development and just general interests. Right. It doesn't have to be like, this is a part of your brain. It doesn't have to be that well, your body needs a quiet space after work with the seven-year-old let's come up with a place that you're, it feels good for you. And you can help to help them design that, right? So they know, hey, whatever you want to call it, the cave, the whatever, your cave is ready for you when you get home. And they know that that's where they can go, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like something that's already established so It decreases the demand for the parent of having to come up with something. Mm-hmm. You know, there's already a, a pop-up tent, or I've had some families that live or live in smaller houses that have We'll pull the couch away from the wall. So they have like a gap, you know, and there's maybe books or, you know, whatever things that they like or music, those kind of things are kind of already available. So you're decreasing the planning demand for the child, but also for yourself. So that's what I might think about a seven-year-old, right. But something that's like established, I have a, a little boy that I see, I have seen someone recently and they're like, well, we have a tent. I'm like, he needs it up without the planning demand of having to go get it. And that Mm -hmm. you don't, you know, if there are other, if the other child has needs that now you're not, especially if the other two in this group need connection, right. Mm -hmm. That You're getting that child's needs met and you're decreasing the like complexity of how to do it all at the same time.
0: Totally. I dig that. And even I'm wondering, even just like a, if there's a bedroom they can go in that they have, like that's their quiet space and it's protected for them where like other siblings aren't going to come in uh, and they have their special toys in there, whatever that they can just unwind.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that's that's what I would do for the seven-year-old. Um, For the nine-year-old, so connection doesn't always, I think it's always a good reminder. Connection doesn't have to be like, you're right here. Right? right. Um. So an example I might think of, and this is, I don't know these kids. So it's sort of like, if a parent was like, let's say the four-year-old has the highest level of need from a safety perspective and connection perspective, which means the caregiver is probably going to have to be more with that physical child, but it could be with the nine-year-old. I had three Pokemon cards in your room. Do you want to see if you can find them and bring them to me? Mm -hmm. Those those are other ways. It doesn't act. I feel like we can get very into like um, physical proximity for connection. Not knowing that child, I don't know if that would work, right? And it might be there's 10 cards hiding. I'm gonna do a game with your brother. And after you find the card, you and I are gonna play Pokemon. FYI, I don't understand I have so many kids that my nephew, I'm like, I don't understand how to play Pokemon at all. Doesn't make but sense to me either, but fire makes no <laughs> sense. The cards are very cool, I'll say that. But you could do something that's like, I'm giving you connection. I was thinking of you, and then we're physically together. It doesn't always have to be if you think of how babies develop, right? They're like, Dave, close to you in the name of the way and come back. You can use that same idea with older kids. It's sort of what do they actually need? Because that might not cut it for that person to feel connected.
0: Yeah, you know? sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. And then for a four-year-old.
1: For a four-year-old. So someone that is uh, a proprioceptive uh, seeker and has like, likes that intensity and wants connection. Um, I might be thinking um, if you had... A, a couple of different things. Find out what you have in your house. If you have a trampoline, sometimes just singing a song and doing that kind of activity. The the purpose of something like a trampoline or bouncing together on a yoga ball is you can get the intensity higher and get the relationship together. You're going to need it for a shorter period of time, right? So, like if they were moving around bean bags, which are kind of light, they'd have to do the game a lot longer to get a sure. sensory deposit versus the trampoline or I know you have a lot of videos of this on Instagram, which is like the kids jumping in the pillows is a great game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and if the other child needed in closer proximity, it could be that there's like, you know, they close their eyes, the parent hides the toy on both of them and brings them back. Mm-hmm. So it is, cool. I will say the complexity of having multiple kids with different needs is, is tricky. Yeah. But like I even think what you did, which you kind of mapped out, like, all right, what does everybody need and what level of, what level of independence do they have? And yeah. What safety needs. And then you can kind of. Um, Adjust.
0: I think yeah. for myself, I had to also build in this mindset shift of it feels like there's so much to happen after we get home from school and like the work days ended and it's like, I got to get dinner ready. And then we're going to like kind of move through a bunch of things. Like there isn't a whole lot of downtime before bed. And I found myself just like jumping into a task And they're expecting to and having a lot of (laughs) challenges where it's like, oh, he's dysregulated or he's now like in this space or he's having a hard time doing this thing that I know he can usually do and feeling like it was pulling me away from like getting dinner ready and kind of going through. And I had to shift for myself. All right, we're going to come in and we're going to have 10 minutes of togetherness and connected intentional time. And that for us really shifted the evening where I got to like pour into what was helpful for him. And then it allowed me to be able to have that separation in a way where I wasn't turning around and like constantly kind of putting out a fire.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think these are things that are like the complexities of parenting, right? Of I, um, I spend a lot of time with children that I work with, but I also have a lot of children in my like normal life that I spend time with. And I'm often the observer, right? I'm often with the kids, but I'm also an observer. And like that idea, if I, if you spend 10 quality, like really focused minutes on what they need, you're both going to function better for the rest of the day. You're not going to be feeling like you're torn of like, I'm trying to cook dinner and meet this need. Right. If you're like the first 10 minutes is like, that part is important. And if I know if we do it, the rest of the evening is just going to be much easier.
0: Yeah. Um, And it, it just, for me, like recognizing that it was, I was really taking care of my future self and that like 10 minutes was actually enough for us where like, it didn't have to be that they had uninterrupted half hour of me or an hour whatever, like 10 minutes goes a long way. Right. Right. And I think
1: If you have a family that you're like, I wish it was 30, but I only have 10, do the 10. Like, you know, it's kind of like, um, I'm reading this fascinating book on habits by James Clear. If you haven't read it, I'm like a little, I'm not marketing anything. I'm just obsessed with this book. But he talks about these things about like going to the gym for five minutes to build a habit, right? And I think there's some some really neat concepts in there that I've used with families and adult clients that I see. um, Because it is like this idea of like, if you're, if you're aiming for, I don't know what perfection is, whatever that even is, but like move towards something, you know, mm-hmm. 10 minutes might get you to like bedtime or towards bedtime, you know, right. it doesn't have to or if either. you have
0: another caregiver coming home at some point, a co-parent right. or whatever, right. like that might right. get you there where you have other right. hands on deck.
1: Yeah. yeah. The nine-year-old you could also use, um, depending on the child, my nephew is, who's almost 11, which I target belief. Um, but he would, he likes to do meal prep sometimes, not all the time, but that could be, that's sometimes a connection moment for him. Like he'll be in the kitchen helping with mm-hmm. dinner. That one's not, to me, it's not as, it's not as reliable because not every kid wants to do that, but those can be, those can be moments that are actually connection opportunities.
0: Yeah. I was even finding for the nine-year-old, like even on our vacation week, he he thrives on connection and like feeling seen and words of affirmation and physical touch are both really big for him. Mm-hmm. And I found that like, if I was just walking by him and just said something that would be connected where he would feel seen like, Hey bud earlier, thanks so much for including Sage when you guys were playing. I know it's hard to include a two-year-old sometimes in big kid games. I really appreciate that. That was so kind of you that like would go along, it filled his tank up. It would go a long way for him that then he wasn't frankly doing annoying things for connection that often will happen when they're like, they don't come up to you and say, I I feel disconnected, right? Like they do things that are really annoying to get your attention and connection. And when I could proactively just like pop in a little sentence like that or stand next to him and like, rub his back while I was standing next to him. We're like at the fridge at one point looking for what's for lunch. And he was next to me. And I just like rubbed his back, had my hand on him um, and then gave him a little squeeze and said, I love you, but I'm so glad we're here together. And then we went on and made lunch. And like those little things really add up for him that I wonder if even at like pickup from school or, you know, once you kind of see each other, if there's a way to connect there, that's really short, it's 15 seconds or less than a minute of That intention, uh, once we know, like that goes a long way for him versus his seven year old sister. You could do that same thing. And she's like, Yeah, whatever. Like, that doesn't recharge me. I don't feel fueled by that. I would like you to actually stop touching me and stop talking to me. And I would like to go into my quiet space and play with my (laughs) toys. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I love, I love thinking about that. Those like micro dosing of like, yeah. And that's different than like if it was, if that child had sensory processing differences, those little mini things they're kind of like, they might feel good in the moment, but they wouldn't necessarily have the long lasting carryover. But with relational and connection work, those little, those micro dosings can actually be the, I love that. I love that. I think this goes to show um, listeners that it's not like a one size fits all, but I loved hearing you talk about like the things that you were observing. And then also like, oh, we know this child has sensory sensitivity. So it means she needs a quiet space. So you're starting to connect what you're seeing to what that child might need. I know you talk about you and Zach needing different things. Oh my gosh, like sensory <laughs> night and day. It yeah, it's yeah. tough. It's tough when it's like there's different people that need different things, and sometimes, you know, we we human nature is like the connection is often like, well, I do this doesn't mean it works for everybody. So it is. It's challenging. So I think there's this, I've I've said it before, probably during another talk, but I'll say it again. Like you try it, it's evaluation. If it works, it's intervention.
0: It pops that in the book from you. (laughs) I know. I love it. It's
1: not mine. It's Reggie Bone She's great. She was an, an OT that passed away, but she, I love that. So even for parents or teachers, you know, I'm going in with the theory that it's this, you know, this child needs this. And then you try it and you see, you know, did it work? Was it long enough? Was the intensity enough? Sometimes you make the total uh, wrong, the wrong guess that you're like, oops, that didn't have the effect that I wanted. But that's part of the, that's part of the process because you're trying to understand the nervous system and needs based on external things. And like you said, kids don't come up and say, I'm just regulated. Like right. <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing other things to tell you. And our job is to kind of just be observers and think, oh, I'm wondering what they're telling me. I wonder if it's this, let's try this strategy. Uh, yeah. And- How it
0: works Uh, for the four year old. I am also wondering just in that, like getting home from school, which is like getting to the car and getting inside, if there are ways to build in, like she carries her backpack out or her lunch bag out and just adding kind of like weight to wherever she's going to be walking. Uh, Mm -hmm. or um, we have a kid that we work with who has like a weighted bean bag that is in the car with him that sits with him in the car seat on his lap and it's become like one of his loveys, basically but it stays in the car and it is his like car seat buddy um and it just gives like a little extra pressure throughout this transition that for him is helpful
1: Right, those are great things I think thinking about during the actual transition like weighted carrying your backpack like you said. Um chewy snacks are another way to get proprioception. Mm. That child likes things like fruit leathers and like those kind of snacks that are like chewy bars, those kind of foods. It's another way to start getting those sort of sensory deposits in during the transition. Um the car ride. Other things that I like, depending on how long their legs are, I have, I have a lot of kids that get nauseous in the car. If they can, if their legs are long enough to reach the the car seat in front, the car seat in front of them, pushing their feet into it, and I'll you know teach kid games. Perfect. Oh my gosh, you want to make a pancake with your feet on there? What flavor do you think we should make? Do you think we should hold it for five seconds or ten seconds? You know, so they're they're just using their feet and pushing it up against the seat.
0: Perfect. Um, yeah
1: so you can make it into you know if that's interesting to them make it into a game but things like a weighted a weighted um a weighted stuffed animal or a backpack on their lap those are all those are all really great strategies that are like you know they're keep them in the car that's not a thing that comes in and out of the house it's like a car thing so you know that that it's always there and that that idea they're getting more input over time so it's going to last in their system longer and get their needs met
0: more efficiently yeah and if folks are tuning in you had mentioned the quiz but we have kind of like a jumping off point for you if you go to seedquiz.com, that will guide you through a series of questions to help you understand a little bit more like what we then give you at the end some activities or ideas of what might be helpful for your child like my kid really benefits from vestibular input like swings and um, dipping upside down now he'll say like mom i want to do some dips or i need to spin around and I would throw up if I did what he does. Um, I, we have very different sensory needs. We often are a sensory mismatch actually. And he is so much like my husband and uh, but figuring out those sorts of things and then having activities that you can kind of adjust, you know, like if you know, they really like heavy work looking at if you, if. Maybe if they want connection too, can they carry some ingredients over to you while you're making dinner or whatever? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you build it into your day? I think so often the the perk of observing and seeing what they gravitate toward is that they will often let us know little clues and hints, and they're really good usually at like seeking out what they need, whether it's space or certain types of input, etc., and we don't have to like, you don't have, have all the toys and gadgets in the world, we can build it into our everyday life. Uh, once we have an idea of what's regulating for them.
1: That's exactly why I started doing more community based work because I felt like the transition from I, I work in a clinic for almost 20 years, you know, I, yeah, decided I really wanted to be in homes and schools um, to really be like, what do they actually have at their actual house that this would work? And how does this actually look when they're melting down, you know, totally,
0: you know? Yeah. Because it's totally different. It's like, yeah, yeah, you don't always have access to a swing. You don't always have access to certain things. And so how do you build it in Sage, You know, I said, loves that like spinning. And so does Zach. And so they play a game often when we're like going into a store, we're going into place. And Sage will ask for it now. He calls it where, 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 where Zach will put him on his shoulders. Like he's sitting on Zach's shoulders and Zach will hold his hands. And he, Zach's like spinning around saying, where's Sage? Where did he go? Where is he? And he will spin around with Zach as Zach's like looking for him on his shoulders. And then he'll dip back on Zach's back while Zach holds his hands or holds his legs. And I like watch it and I can't, I cannot play that game with him because it truly makes me sick. And he knows to like ask dad for it. And we will intentionally like do it when we're going into a space where it gives him, especially like we're going into a restaurant, he'll do it from the car to the door. Just like gives him some vestibular input when we're going to go into a space where he doesn't have access to a swing or something like that. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's great that you have a family member that likes that. Um,
0: oh God. So convenient. Right. And yeah. it's really brutal when it's just like him and I, and I'm like, I can do dips with you. I can hold you and I can dip. Right. You
1: <laughs> yeah. I think the kids knowing that like, you also have a nervous system, you know? So if I have, a, I do have a lot of kids that like to spin. And sometimes I have, sometimes they're little enough that I can hold them, but like, if they need to spin around for a minute, yeah. I'll I'll probably uh, forget vomit. I'll probably fall over. Right. Totally. So, so it's all like one of the kids that I see will do a game. We wrap him up in a blanket and then, yeah. you know, on the bed, you know, so he's yeah, like pull it out see. so that he rolls yeah, out. So he yeah. On. yeah. So that idea of like, he knows that there's a choice. I know I have a choice that's safe for both of us. Yeah. his needs. Um, my nephew is a highly active. He always has been. And I remember when he was little, probably saved to the age we used to do this game. It'd be like 7 a.m. He's like, let's go in the yard. I was like, I know what that means. He's gonna want to run around. So I would I would get bubbles out and I would sit down and have my coffee and blow bubbles and he'd be racing all over the yard. So and even now we'll come up with games. He wants to do all these stunts in the pool. I'm like, all right, I'll I'll throw the ball and you jump and catch it. Yeah, perfect. You know, so it's how do you find games that like you can do together? It doesn't mean you have to be doing the exact same thing. You can both have jobs within that game that like work for your nervous system.
0: Totally. And those little deposits, I think are huge. Um, Lori. I think this is so helpful. So I just want to pull it all together that our kids often at school, they're taking in so much stimuli and they have a lot of things that they have to do. Kind of like we do at work where mm-hmm. there's a lot of tasks and people need things from us or want things from us. And we're processing all the stimuli and information and doing a lot. And uh, that adds up for us sensory mm-hmm input is cumulative and so it continues to add up and they will have access to some access for some regulation depending on the school or the setup or how old the kid is Mm-hmm. but they might have other needs when they get home. And it might have just been like, oh my gosh, it really built up. I think especially in back to school time, if they are changing classrooms, they're getting to know a new caregiver, new routines, kind of new expectations, when everything feels new uh, and there's a lot for your brain to take in, it then we want to decrease our task demands. And I think of this where like, Just in my first trimester with this pregnancy, I was like, okay, what can I take off my plate? Because I just have so much more happening. My bandwidth is lower. What can I take off my plate? Sometimes it meant dinners ordered in instead of making them. Or, yeah, I'm just not going to be on top of laundry in the same way. Just like looking at where can we decrease things. And so for kids, this might be things that we know that they know how to do maybe we're supporting them with, especially in those first few weeks back to school where um, they're feeling even more overwhelmed than they might as they get into a flow at school and understand the expectations in this classroom and this teacher and these peers, et cetera. Uh, And then looking at the observation part of like, who are they? What are they sensitive to? And then what recharges them? What fills Mm -hmm. their cup? And how can we essentially make accommodations for that? Also bonus points if you want to pause and do that for yourself of like, what am I sensitive to and what recharges me so that maybe you recharge yourself for a hot minute right before pickup or you build in if you're going to play a game with kids when they come home activities that also are recharging for you that I'm not playing where, where, where on the bat on the way to the car, because then I'm going to get into the car in a more depleted state. So what can I do to help him from the door to the car as we go home. Uh and then looking at like if we have multiple kids what are ways we can set ourselves up for success like you said pulling that couch away from the wall where there's a little spot or creating a space in the bedroom or a little pop up tent or something where they can go and have that escape or hiding those three pokemon cards before we leave so that there's a thing to do but a little bit of like looking ahead for ourselves to set ourselves up for success and carving out five to ten minutes where when we come in we get to focus on them right it's a gift to ourselves that, really
1: yeah <laughs> it totally is and there are situations I I, I'll, I this has been a great conversation I also think the thing that you just touched on I don't want to like bypass of like the parent like how do you regulate yourself as the adult sometimes that's the only thing you have access to for something like if you're like we are deep in this and the things that would normally work, they, they, they're, they're like, you know, they flip their lid, as Dan Siegel would say, they're in the lower part of their brain, it's just hard to access. So, so sometimes in those situations, what you can control actually is your own
0: mm-hmm. regulation,
1: right? I'm going to take some deep breaths, you know, just to get myself grounded in a situation where I can't, I can't there, I'm here to keep them safe, but we can't quite access some of these tools. And that's not when any of us, I was, I always compare it to when people are like, well, just, just calm down. I'm like, that doesn't work. Doesn't work for me. If you're trying to, if I'm upset and you're just trying to talk me out of it, it's not, it's actually going to make it worse. Cause I'm just going to get mad.
0: Right. How so, do we move through it?
1: How do you move through it? And sometimes you need time, right? Like sometimes it's, uncom- it's uncomfortable as the adult. I mean, I'm I'm sure every parent has been in a store where their kid is having a meltdown over something or I've been in sessions that what you're describing happens and you're in a waiting room filled with parents that are like happen to be happening with you, you're the therapist and you're like well this is, it's actually showing that they're really safe with me, but also like this, this is going to happen and it's good to know what happened, it's going to, no one did anything wrong, this child is just overwhelmed by you know, the cumulative effects of a day or, you know, whatever the thing was that, that created that. So sometimes it's like, they just need space before you can really help them regroup and give them, give them ways to do so.
0: Yeah. And it's, I, I think it can be a hard line to find of like, when do I give them time and space and when do I step in and co-regulate? And we got a whole book for you. You got a whole book on that Right. That's what the
2: book is
1: for.
0: This is like some like, <laughs> right. some seeds, if you will, of the concept. That's right planting some seeds. Well done. Ah, Uh, (laughs) Mary. And if folks, if you have not pre-ordered the book yet, you can head to uh, slash book to get tiny humans, big emotions. So much of what we talked about today is packed into there. We dive into those unique nervous systems as well as how to respond to your unique child that there is no one size fits all when it comes to regulation and emotion processing. And so we dive into all that slash book and we got a bunch of goodies and bonus things for you if you snag it before October 10th so head on over and grab tiny humans big emotions uh Lori thank you for being you I love getting to hang out with you and learn from you it's such a gift where can so people... fun How is it? yeah where can people find you connect with you all that jazz um, the best way to reach me is I have a private practice called
1: Drive Together Occupational Therapy out in the Boston area, uh, so you're welcome to contact me there if you're interested in services. I provide services in um, parts of Massachusetts, and in, I'm licensed in Vermont for telehealth, so I can do sessions or parent education. I also love, as you can probably tell from this conversation, I love Work with all types of professionals and parents on like education and those things. So those
0: are there's some information on my website and all the the different services that I do offer. Sweet, we will link that in uh, the blog post and show notes for anyone who's like me and consuming podcasts while they're like on the go or doing dishes or whatever, not jotting things down. You can head to VoicesOfYourVillage.com to find anything that's been linked here, the seed quiz, Lori's uh, website, and all that jazz. Thank you, Lori.